That's right. It's baby shark time here in Washington, D.C. This is the best political podcast that you never download. It's Backroom Politics from Studio A in Podcast Village in the heart of Georgetown, Washington, D.C., your nation's capital. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Now, you're wondering, wait a minute, why are we hearing baby shark and not the normal cool opening that Rob, the engineer behind the glass, had put together so studiously? And I will tell you why, because we are celebrating the Washington Nationals getting into the World Series against the American League champion Houston Astros. The reality is uh, baby shark fever is taking over the nation's capital, but that is the only fever that is taking over the nation's capital as we continue to watch the dumpster fire of political prowess going on here in Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do usually for our podcast across the studio, across the table from me, he is the former undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. He is the one we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And joining us from a slightly undisclosed and remote location in the Bay State of Massachusetts, he is the author of such books as American Politics on the Rocks. He is Rich Rubino. Hello, Rich. Hello, Justin. And joining us in studio, another treat, two podcasts in a row. She is our favorite former attorney for the Hillary Clinton 2016 presidential campaign, and now big-time Wall Street high finance lawyer, Sharmila Chari. Hi, Sharmila. Hi, Justin. Welcome back to studio. We miss you. Oh, I miss you guys, too. Uh, well, obviously not I enough wish, to get on the line. I wish I could be here with you more often. I know. So As I we. told you, Justin, I have my secret Illuminati meetings typically at Tuesdays at no, 4. So. I w- I'm, a, I'm a Mason. <laughs> I would know about that. Anyway, uh, Rob the Engineer is behind the glass keeping us honest. Charlie Burney, our proprietor, is here walking around doing cool stuff and stepping into the studio to do his producer-type stuff, Eric Thomas. Uh we're going to start off, we, we kind of mentioned it in the last podcast, but we didn't spend a lot of time on it because there is so much going on. The um, In case you missed it, last Friday, uh, Acting Chief of Staff uh, Mick Mulvaney went to the podium in the White House press briefing room and disclosed that, hey, we picked a site for the G7, and it is, wait for it, wait for it, the Trump Resort at Doral in Miami, Florida. Yeah, that's right. The resort where they want to hold the G7 summit is the Trump-named resort in Doral, Miami, Florida in Western Dade County. Uh, that stirred up a hornet's nest of anything from opposition to, hey, another possible impeachable offense. Uh, But let's stick outside of the impeachment, because we've already talked about that in another podcast episode. Let's stick to the whole idea of, hey, the president's going to have it at his resort, his company, down in Miami, Florida. Uh, Republicans and Democrats both at arms on this. Alan Moore, uh, Mick Mulvaney kind of came out and said, yeah, we looked at a bunch of other sites, but this one makes the best sense. And, oh, it just so happens to be. Donald Trump's resort, uh, where the it, it doesn't seem to me like they're actually logically thinking this stuff through politically, or are they just that brazen? Well, I, I think the problem is it's not they, it's he, it's the president. Um, this president notoriously does not listen to advice from those around him. He famously 
talks about how being an advisor to him is one of the easiest jobs ever because he's the guy who decides. And he is the self-proclaimed expert on virtually any issue that, that you can mention and that he is his own favorite advisor. And this is further proof of that fact, because when he was at the G7 um, just uh, six weeks ago and raised this question, you know, we'll come to America, maybe we'll do it at 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 Doral. It's both a it's a it's a large hotel convention complex and world class golf course. Uh, He paid a bunch of money for it. He put millions into it and uh, it has not been doing that well. But. Uh, lately, um, and he knows that, but he is anything that's Trumpian in his mind is the best in the history of the world. People were writing about it at the time. People were advising about it, talking about the emoluments clause, which is a constitutional provision. And we'll get to that. that. Well, we'll get to that but point, that's the yeah. whole point here that that it's arguably a violation of the Constitution for him to take money from foreign governments for his own personal profit, and and all of that notwithstanding, all of that conversation notwithstanding. Mick Mulvaney went out into the press room and briefed the, the, the press and said, this is where we're going to hold it. It's the best place possible for it, and was prepared to start answering questions about and it. And that's when he got into another and mess. And he got into the whole mess about talking about, right. about Ukraine and the, and the phone conversation with the new the Ukrainian president. Right. But, but they didn't even get to the point that the president tried to make— Two days later, when he said, "Okay, never mind, we're not going to go there," even though I was prepared to do it for no profit, I could he could have done it for no cost. It would have been great. I don't need the publicity. Nobody's ever had more publicity than me. Yeah, it 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 was just. But he was clearly angry about it. The problem for him, though, was that the 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 previously mentioned Mick Mulvaney, acting chief of staff, had a group of Republican uh, members of Congress at Camp David this past weekend, talking about what's going on with Ukraine, with Syria, and now with the G7. And the Republicans said, we cannot keep defending the president on all of these fronts. We completely disagree on on the decision in Syria, and we think and we disagree completely on the appearances here. Right. And the president finally, finally, it's so rare, listened to this cacophony of voices and said, fine, we won't do it. And, he, and but, in bitter tweets, right, but he, he said, we won't do it, even though it would have been the best deal ever. But, but here's the thing is, you, you know, number one, just from the emoluments clause, a telling point, Sharmla, was uh, earlier in the week when the president, it was announced that they would not have it at uh, at Doral, at the Trump Resort at Doral, when he was giving his 71-minute presser in the cabinet meeting in the cabinet room at the White House, President Trump, when asked about it, said, you know, the stupid emoluments clause. It, it, not said no, phony. Huh? Phony emoluments phony, clause. Phony emoluments clause. <laughs> it, it, it almost seems that the president's disregard for the fact Again, against the advice of advisors, against the advice of political supporters, he still makes this move. It is this a continuation of the president's disregard for the 
for the Constitution, or is it a just an ignorance of what reality is and how to work the office of the president? Look, it's all of those things, right? This isn't the first time the president has used the words phony, fake, to describe, you know, news or a fact that is, you know, inconvenient to him or critical of him. So this I think is a that guy that's... who says that he he knows the Constitution better than anybody, and if he knew the Constitution, he would read that the Emoluments Clause is part of the Constitution. It's well, Justin, law. he also has the biggest brain and has the best words. That's true. Too. So I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure where the problem lies here. You know, but right again, it is a pattern with this president who disregards facts or valid criticisms that he disagrees with and who wants to barrel ahead to do whatever he wants to do, you know, and damn the consequences, right? As Alan said, he is a one-man show when it comes to making these decisions. He said, hey guys, G7's coming. Let's do it at Doral. You know, we need a cash infusion there. And again, hypothetical, you know, conversation that may have happened, but in all seriousness, part of what made him successful in 2016 was blowing forward, acting on his own instinct when every single Republican elected official and political consultant, I'm sure, told him, rein it in, act like a normal politician. You know, that's the only way you'll have a chance. That's not a style. That's, that's not, a, not style. a style. And he was right, right? It, and yeah, he true. went out there on his escalator, you know, throwing fire at everyone, and he won. Yeah. And so, right, he is, of all lessons to be learned, he has carried that lesson with him the most to heart. And so... I think going forward, unless there is a real check on his power, and this, you know, this um, is a precursor to a longer discussion about the failures of our legislative branch, but unless there's a real check on his power, like what occurred and, you know, how Alan described, he's going to keep just blowing through whatever norms that most presidents would adhere to because they believe in, they believe in, you know, maintaining decorum and they believe in, you know, acting at least publicly properly, you know, in, in engaging in proper conduct vis-a-vis this office. I mean, Rich Rubino, was this a big middle finger to, you know, those who oppose him and saying, yeah, come after me for a monuments clause? <laughs> Probably. I mean, I don't know. It could have been it could have been his ignorance, too. I don't know if it was just the fact that, you know, I, I mean, I'm, since he does know the Constitution better than anybody else, I'm assuming that he knows about that clause as well. But, you know, I guess he's not a constitutional lawyer. Um, you know, one time, I think, when I was going back to the campaign, though, it's interesting, because I do remember the one time where I think he actually listened to his advisors, and that was right after the Access Hollywood tape came out. And the advisor he listened to was actually Roger Stone, the now indicted Roger Stone. And Roger Stone basically, so this was what was going on, just to back up a little bit, this was the day when, the, when they were having the second debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And Donald Trump decides to do something that's really unprecedented. He decides that he's going to... To try to, to try to kind of, as a counteroffensive, he invites Paula Jones, Juanita Broderick, and Kathleen Willey, all who had, who had alleged allegations that Bill Clinton had either raped or sexually harassed them. And he brings them to a press conference outside the debate, and he essentially has them all going around telling their stories. So he essentially he took the narrative upon himself to say, well, essentially, and this is what Paula Jones was saying, or Kathleen Willey and, and Juanita Broderick were saying, well, you know, he said some bad words, but look at what the Clintons did. So and that was the one case where, yeah, and the other, where he actually took advice of that one advisor. And the other thing he did that day, that was also the only time I think he's ever actually apologized. He came on Twitter and said, I said it and I apologize. But, 
he does then, I mean, you know, generally speaking, other than Roger Stone and perhaps somebody he'll take advice from, like Alan Dershowitz, for different things that they tend to agree with him, he likes either yes men or likes to go from his big for his uh, big brain, and that's generally where he goes. And it's true in the election. The only people in the um, in the only people I can think of who actually predicted and they were laughed at that Donald Trump was going to win, this was during the primary, were Ann Coulter and Michael Moore, of all people. And I remember there was a, there was a time when the Bill Maher asked Ann Coulter, said, who, who do you think is going to win? And he said, she said, oh, it's going to be Donald Trump. And everybody laughed. But, you know, Donald Trump, he trusted his instincts, and he went after just, he went against just about everything that any political scientist basically taught since the Hayes administration. And somehow he was able to conjure up 65 million votes. But Alan Moore, I mean, should we be making a big deal about this, is, is, or are we over-exaggerating the importance of the president wanting to have it, and as Rich pointed out, he said he was going to do it for free. Well, he said that as as he pulled back. I don't think Mitch Mulvaney ever kind of got to that point. Um uh, I think this is this is typical uh, of the president. As we know, uh, he owns a hotel, or his company owns a hotel uh, here in D.C. that that that's in a in a federally owned building. It was once once an old post office, kind of a fancy upscale hotel, very close to the White House. And the question when he was after his election, even during his election, and then after, what's he going to do about the hotel and other properties? Because Still Trump he, hotel, he shouldn't be able to to personally benefit from this, and he. He went through a few little procedural steps that would that would allow him to, to argue that he was not uh, personally benefiting. Um, they were they were not nothing, but they weren't much. Um, and uh, and and there's a lot of evidence that Republican groups and foreigners like to come and stay there. And, and then they talk and then they praise the facility if they happen to have a meeting uh, with the president. And that seems to bring them some level of. Of, of favor and so the president has been able for the last couple of years to 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 proceed that way and I think that he simply thought I can do that with Doral I think he truly believes that Doral would be a fabulous facility for this now the security people disagree with that but but I think he thinks that and it it it, it one way or the other, it should bring at least a lot of publicity, if not financial benefit now, maybe later. Um, uh, I, I, I was thinking about this, 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 this question. I wanted to make one comment. We, we, had, we had been talking about the impeachment inquiry and so on, and the fact that even if there's a smoking gun relating to a quid pro quo in Ukraine, that doesn't mean that— That's going back to the conversation that, we that, had that, in, the, in the, an earlier right. episode. But I'm, but I'm th- that, that would, would necessarily succeed in having him removed, because it, it, how big of a sin do you need to overturn in the, in the Congress uh, the decision that the American people have made? And I'm, and I'm thinking that there are a couple of things in, uh, that, that, that will likely happen, and one is that for the, for the president to get out from under this, as, as more and more evidence uh, emerges, that that there, there did seem to be linkage here uh, between uh, uh, support for Ukraine and, 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 and these investigations. Somebody's got to take a fall. The president, of course, is thinking, it shouldn't be me what? through impeachment, but, but who, who's going to take a fall? Now, Mulvaney set himself up to, to be a candidate for taking a fall, and he may well be replaced um, because this really was problematic. Right. But the other person that's more likely to take the fall, in my judgment, is Rudy Giuliani, the guy who helped lead the president into what turned out to be a trap. And you know, we talk all about how— 
how Hunter Biden was an was an albatross around former Vice President Biden's uh, neck politically. Well, I would argue that when it comes to Ukraine, Rudy Giuliani is Hunter Biden on steroids (laughs) for this president. He is way, a way bigger real problem. And there's bigger news coming out. So I, I think that that it's it's hard as this stuff comes out to see Giuliani surviving, and the other big penalty for the president, I think, assuming he survives the the you know the the the, the trial likely to come for impeachment, is there will be so much anger and distress and resentment in future years that all of the Trump organization and all the Trump businesses are going to pay a price right. that we cannot begin to estimate. Oh, absolutely. But here, here's. Here's the thing that gets me, Richard Bino. Number one, you know, coming from Florida, I'm very familiar with Doral, uh, home of the Blue Monster golf course, played it, love it, fantastic. You're talking about having, you know, the leaders of the G7 countries flying into Miami International Airport, blocking up traffic in a major urban area. And oh, by the way, it's uh, August, I think it was? June. 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 Even June in Florida, where it's 97 degrees and 100% humidity, I mean, did anybody think that this was, hey, I got a great idea, let's bring everybody to sweat it out, be uncomfortable in humidity, and oh, by the way, block up traffic in one of the biggest metropolitan urban areas in the world, and he's not looking to profit by this? I mean, to me, this is a logistical nightmare. What's the reality? It's just a weird coincidence. Um, no, um, <laughs> it's weird how things like this happen. I mean, obviously he hadn't thought about that, and all of a sudden he says, you know, this is my hotel. No, I think that, um, yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, it's, hard, it's very hard to make the case that of all the places in the country that they could have had that meet, that G7 meeting, that one that happens to be his hotel, that happens to be off-season, that happens to have had been in kind of a financial downgrade right now, that that would be the one where he would choose. I mean, it's just so it's just so blatant, blatantly obvious. And I think that someone got into Donald Trump's head and said, "You just can't keep going with this. It can't be like you can't make this into another John McCain, where after John, after after John McCain's funeral and his appearance there, it has continued to kind of excoriate John McCain, and then you know it just it just kept go, it just kept going and going, and getting worse and worse. Someone said, "You have to put this to a screeching halt now. You have to essentially cut your losses." And this is one of those rare occasions, just like you know the the Access Hollywood the Access Hollywood issue, where he essentially and I guess the other issue would have been where he, they were talking about cutting cutting the Special Olympics, and then eventually he came in there and said, "No, we're going to restore the funding." This is one of those rare instances where I think he actually listened to somebody other than this big brain and said, "Yes, I think we have to I think we have to essentially backtrack on this and not go any further." And it just it just looks so it the if the impropriety I mean it looks so blatant here, and it's very hard for someone to make the case that. Well, this is just ha- you know this just happens to be his hotel. It just happens to be in Miami. It just happens to be in off season. It just happens to be something that's not performing well. That somehow this is just a great coincidence. It's just very hard to make that case. I don't know how anyone would make it. Yeah, Sharmila, we knew the Democrats were going to come after this. We knew that uh, there might even be some Republicans that would come after this. But again, I go to you. Do you think that the Democrats have? again, overplayed their hand with this, or is this a legitimate issue that American voters should be cognizant and concerned about? Yeah, I think, ironically, the president can blame the Democrats all he wants, but the truth is that he made this decision and this announcement on the heels of the Republicans being incredibly vexed with him 
to put it mildly, about his Syria decision. And, you know, to to kind of pack this one-two punch on something, as Rich and Alan said, that was so brazen, he found his Republican support collapsing. I think had, you know, had Republicans come out and said, oh, yeah, you know, it's a beautiful resort. I've golfed there. It's it's a wonderful, you know, of course, this is a not optically a great coincidence, but, you know, the president had many sound reasons for, for choosing Doral, right? None of them said that. Many Republican senators came out and said, this is BS. And I'm sure they said worse privately. And so I think that, right, the president, you know, with his big brain, made the political calculation that, you know, with so many senators already incredibly frustrated with his Syria decision, this was not a battle he could really afford to fight yeah. with the impeachment trial coming oh, no, up. You know what's the funny one? The, the one I love, the excuse I love is when they were talking about other venues, you know, they talked about what a crap hole uh, Camp David is. They had said that they had talked about, actually, I, I think it was Mick Mulvaney that said, we looked at one and because of the high altitude, we would have had to have had oxygen tanks there for, and come to find out through uh, sources inside the White House, they were talking about the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs, and I was like, wait a minute, so you would have to bring in oxygen canisters for everybody being there. What about the 350,000 people that live in Colorado Springs who don't require oxygen cans? And the branch of the military that's stationed there. Yeah, the Air there. Force. The Air Force is there. Spacecom is there. I don't get it. It's it's a comedy. It's a comedy. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back here. Uh, short break. You are listening to the best political podcast you have never downloaded. Well, if you're listening to us, you obviously have. Uh, back from politics. We'll be right Woke back. Up this morning looking for my diamond jewel. Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Also known as Pierre Delecto. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, love, I love that name now. I, I got to start using that. 
For those of you who don't get the inside, Carlos the Beltway Danger. joke, Carlos Danger, Pierre Delecto. Uh, it was announced this week uh, that uh, Mitt That's Romney, to Mitt Romney. Sen- Senator Mitt Romney has been using Definitely. an underground Twitter account under the name Pierre Delecto. So uh, I'm just going to start using that as a, as a, as a it's, it's that or Tony Delray. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the 2020 uh, Dems. Uh, Fiesta, I guess you want to call it, that happened last week in the latest in the in the uh, Democratic race for the nomination for president. Lots of maneuvering, uh, starting with the debate that they had. They had 12 on stage, which is one of the larger numbers that they've had. And uh, they kept it to one night, thankfully. But we're also starting to see some uh, positioning and some changes in some polling numbers it's really going to get interesting here as we get into the closing months of 2019 into the actual election year. Sharmila, uh, let me start with you. Um, overall, did the Democrats actually help themselves? Because one of the criticisms I've heard is that the Democrats are losing an opportunity here for them to actually get to a broader electorate, they're focused too much on the possible primary electorate, and they have an opportunity to talk to the independent and no-party-affiliated voters. Did they do anything to help that, or are they still going down the far-left trail? Look, I always see these debates as a circular firing squad. Nobody really comes out of this unscathed. Was it a circling firing squad, this last one? I think so. Why? Right. You know, some... Some fared better than others, right? Buttigieg and Klobuchar both got badly needed, you know, wind in their sails from their performance in these debates. Um, you know, Warren got justified flack for not being able to articulate how Medicare for all would actually be paid for and for not articulating what everyone knows, which is that this would raise taxes on the middle class. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that criticism is very justified in that a lot of middle of the road voters, and you see this in you know polls and focus groups, think that you know as distasteful as Donald Trump is, they see the Democrats as not really standing for anything besides being anti-Trump and who can claim to be the most left-leaning, right? Who can be the most quote-unquote socialist? And so I think the Democrats are continuing to not learn the lesson of 2016, which is when you don't really define yourself as anything, you don't resonate. Donald Trump, again, as distasteful as his message may have been and continues to be, at least defined himself as something. The Democrats are still in their in their well bless you, Alan, in their well-intentioned desire to be inclusive and to kind of, you know, and to truly provide a social safety net for the most vulnerable members of our society are continuing to not really define what their value proposition is for the middle-of-the-road, middle-class American voter. Alan Moore, we heard heard a lot, apparently, from Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts. She had about uh, 3,900 words and spoke most time during the debate. Uh, We also had uh, Joe Biden at 3,100 words. It, it, did are we starting to get numb to uh, Elizabeth Warren and hearing about her plan? Or I mean, is the electorate waiting to hear okay details about the plan? 
So most of the electorate isn't paying attention yet. So, <laughs> there's, so that. They, there's that. They're, they're obviously not waiting with any with any excitement or anticipation because they're watching other things and doing other things. Those those of us crazy people who pay attention to this stuff uh, are beginning to say, "Hmm, she." Speaking of Elizabeth Warren, now runs the risk of grating on people, and she doesn't seem runs to have a, a lot of sense of humor about anything um, and she wants to keep telling us um, about her in, in little short snippets her, her history I've spent my life studying this I've got 50 plans for this I've I've had 70,000 selfies the one thing she doesn't mention is that she was making $350,000 a year at Harvard for teaching two classes <laughs> but that we don't want she doesn't want to be part of her narrative right it'll be there later don't worry um, uh, but but she she's a smart accomplished energetic uh woman um, right. and 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 uh and formidable and right. she's been on the ascent more than anyone else at the expense mostly of bernie to some extent uh of biden right who who, who not surprising to longtime observers of, of Biden turns out to be not a very good front runner. Right. Um, and he's been uh, he's showing his age a bit. He gets confused. He's always talked too much and gets uh, uh, gets confused uh, in his syntax. And that is showing up. He does not have a good answer to all of the conversation about about Hunter Biden, uh, and he doesn't get a lot of defense uh, from the people around him. If you think if you think about it, because why should they right. defend a situation that should never have occurred so, in the first place? So, 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 but but what's fearful to independents and 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 longtime Democrat strategists and centrists um, is that you've got Bernie and Elizabeth Warren fighting to see who can make the most promises of all the benefits and 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 that are going to be that are going to be given in virtually every field it's not just medicare but education and infrastructure and so on um but but and bernie's somewhat well here's a funny thing about that though alan is you know when when you look at the last debate you know you talked about the issues of uh you know education etc Foreign policy, healthcare, Trump, and the economy were the top were the top topics brought up and argued, bantered about on stage by the Democrats. Uh, it, it seems to me that are, are they really listening to the electorate, or are they just going off of policy binders that? Well, there. So, so the idea with we've had four debates now. They're not all supposed to 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 be the same, repeated over and over again. Although there's a little of that. The 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 hosts and moderators try to move subjects to different places, and and they did try to spend some time on uh, on foreign policy more so than before. And they have they do that in part because that hasn't gotten a lot of conversation, in part because there's some foreign policy issues that are pretty much in the spot. Spotlight right now, especially Syria, Ukraine, uh, the Russia, and the elections, etc., um, and and not to mention China and and the ongoing uh, trade challenges right. and right. and in uh, conflict there. So so it continues to 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 move around. Now that doesn't mean that people don't try to 
to to drop their own issue in. I think it was it was Kamala Harris who first said nobody yet. We've talked about health and nobody's talking about women's reproductive rights. Well, so that got her a little applause and and it was like okay. And I think the moderator said we're going to get we're going to get to that. Uh, people people lay in wait. They, they they strategize. How can I say something that will get me some attention and some positive response? Well, we haven't seen uh, we haven't seen a lot of that in the well, past. Well, it's debates. really hard. It's not like they're not all well, trying. I mean, Buttigieg and, and Klobuchar mm-hmm. were, were were coming in, and right. they decided to both fairly aggressively, uh, politely, push back on Warren, right. who's now the the perceived front runner, even though she doesn't, she's not number one in all the polls. She's the one that's got the momentum, and she's got plenty of vulnerabilities so, with some of her some of her policy proposals. So, for a second, I want to not talk about the debate. Let's talk about Democrats as a whole, Sharmila. Uh, Bernie Sanders had a marginal showing, some say, at the debate. He really didn't perform up to expectations. But at the same time, he and by the way, this is his first real appearance since his heart uh, issue. Heart attack. Uh, heart attack, I guess we'll call it that. Um, he does. Uh, he what it is. is Belatedly, but yes. Well, I, I call it arterial fibrillation, but that's a whole nother story. The The thing about it is it was his first appearance after his medical scare. And then when he goes out to Queens, he's got AOC endorsing him and 25, 26,000 people right there in a park by the East River. Is are we missing something? Because Bernie Sanders' numbers seem to be shrinking, his money raising doesn't seem to be as robust as it would have been earlier. What are we missing here? Look, I think there's a framework that you know can predict or can define who the front runners in a race will be, and I think right. you know obviously name recognition is one of them. Bernie right. has huge name recognition. Two or an original, a really original idea, which Bernie absolutely had, right? Bernie was the first candidate back in 2015, 2016, who really talked and, you know, had a viable proposal for creating this, like I said, social safety net that would capture every single person in America, right? That was a novel concept that, you know, he should get credit for. And now, you know, in 2016, he's lost a little bit of that mojo because basically every other candidate has saw how popular it was and has co-opted that as their own, right? Elizabeth Warren has then added to it with her, with the additional layer of being, you know, incredibly anti, anti-Wall anti Street and kind of anti-big business. And so, right, that, again, coupled with, you know, she didn't have the name recognition Bernie did, but like coupled with kind of the originality of these positions, that I think also has catapulted her to frontrunner status. Joe Biden obviously had name recognition and the association with, you know, the Democratic Party's most rock star politician of the last 45 years. But how much how much is it that And so I think Bernie will always have especially in, you know, the liberal cores of America, uh, right? Bernie's always going to have an incredible amount of support, right? But in talking to some in talking to some Democrats, I, I I start to hear a mantra saying, "We've been down this road with Bernie before. We went down this road in 2016. It, we're starting we're not hearing truly anything new out of Bernie, I'm no. hearing a lot more out of Republicans here, central here in Washington saying, why is he still in play? Look, I think that it is, you know, he still has a loyal 
fan base. We saw from, that in the Queen's function. We saw that in the Queen's function, right? Like you ha- And you have all these, you know, up-and-coming politicians, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who would attribute their interest and their, you know, their engagement in politics to Bernie Sanders, right? Hillary Clinton or any of, or even Barack Obama didn't inspire them the way Bernie Sanders did right. to get into politics, right? So you're always going to, like, right, you know, the irony of a 80, 78-year-old man, you know, inspiring a 27-year-old Latina woman is, you know, somewhat, <laughs> it's somewhat a funny picture, but it's true, right? Like That makes sense. I mean, it think, makes sense. And, and that's no small accomplishment. I don't think we should, you know, despite my personal feelings about Bernie Sanders, I don't think that anyone can take that away from him. And so I think when people say, you know, why is he still in play? He's clearly, you know, he's older than the pack. He has got health issues. His, you know, his numbers are both fundraising and polling numbers are fading and, you know, there doesn't seem to be he's not There's original no real path ahead his, his, his viewpoint is not original anymore i think that you still i think that ignores the history of where he came from um to get to where he is now and i think that as long as he's in the race he's gonna have a viable base that is devoted to him richard bino yeah and here's the, yeah here's another thing about bernie sanders remember in 2015 uh, the progressive left, a lot of the next root folks, were beseeching Elizabeth Warren to get into that race and run for president against Hillary Clinton. She didn't do it. Bernie Sanders did. Now, Bernie Sanders, when he first announced his presidential candidacy, he didn't go up and have his huge rally in Burlington, Vermont. He was at Washington. He was in Washington out in front of the Capitol. He brought up a few reporters and reporters there, and they basically announced his candidacy. It wasn't seen as a major candidacy. Someone like Martin O'Malley was seen as more likely to be the liberal alternative to Hillary Clinton, but he worked it. And, you know, it was very similar. It's like what happened in 68, for example. The, the progressive anti-Vietnam Vietnam War people wanted Robert Kennedy to run. He didn't run. Then Eugene McCarthy ran, and they were with Eugene McCarthy. Then Kennedy got back in the race and ran, and it was still kind of split. In this case, you have a lot of people who potentially would have maybe been with Elizabeth Warren had she announced her candidacy in 2016, but she didn't do it, so they've been with Bernie Sanders essentially since 2016. I mean, you look at, you know, he said 45% with young people, for example. It's not even close. It's like the lead Joe Biden has in South Carolina among African-American voters, for example. Um, young voters, even though he doesn't fit that demographic, you, I remember in one of the debates, Eric Swalwell from California kept saying it was time to pass the torch. The idea being that somebody needed somebody who was younger and that they would represent the younger generation. But the younger generation likes Bernie Sanders' ideas, not necessarily – he's not certainly not part of their generation, but they like the ideas that he espouses. And also the idea, for example, of Medicare for all, that was seen as a very fringe – that was a very fringe issue. Go back, for example, when Dennis Kucinich ran for president in, 1980, in 2004, 2008, he was espousing that there should what he called, you know, there should be single payer. He called not for profit health care. He was seen as a very fringe candidate when he had that position. Bernie Sanders was always in the United States Senate seen as very a fringe figure, but he basically mainstreamed that issue. And you have a point now where you have even where you have even some moderate Democrats who ran in 2018 entertaining the idea of there being Medicare for all. So he's really made that into the mainstream issue, and that's why I think a lot of people are still with are still with Bernie Sanders. And the other issue is, in terms of foreign policy, Bernie Sanders always tends to vote against a lot of military budgets. For example, right. he's still somewhat of a non-interventionist. Elizabeth Warren, if you look at her, um, she's a lot more she's a lot more moderate, a lot more of a kind of an establishment Democrat, if you will on some foreign policy issues. Right. So that's one opening that Bernie Sanders certainly right. has to siphon votes away from Elizabeth Warren. Right. Sharmila, uh, last topic on this. Uh, tell me how the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, <laughs> ha- 
has managed to go from obscure kind of novelty, gay veteran, moderate Democrat, and out of sight of everybody, has now managed to go into third place. What is happening with Mayor Pete Buttigieg? So I was actually having this conversation with a friend last night. I think Pete Buttigieg has a lot of great components, right? You know, he's good-looking, he's a veteran, he's incredibly well-spoken and intelligent. You know, he's he's diverse. If You know, he's the first kind of viable LGBTQ candidate that we've seen out there who has who has mass appeal, right? He's he's a Christian, uh, you know, a practicing Christian who, you know, is able to reconcile his Christian faith with democratic policy ideas, right? That's that's and he does it in an incredibly he does it in an incredibly authentic and genuine way. And I think that that connects with a lot of people. Um, you know, he also he is helped by our friend Liz Smith, yeah. who is his communications director. Uh, who's got, you know, plenty of, you know, media and Washington experience. So I'm sure that doesn't hurt him. He, you know, I think that his, his charm and his youth, his authenticity and his kind of differentiating factors, you know, make him a, an attractive candidate to a lot of folks who want someone who's middle of the road, right? They want, they don't want to be, you know, I feel like there's a lot of pressure when you're when you're in democratic circles and when you're a democratic voter there's a lot of pressure to be pulled to the left and to you know kind of embrace this new progressive socialism is he the one that, that is he the one that's restraining that no i don't i don't think he's restraining it but i think that you know there is a lot of pressure on the left to kind of embrace a more leftward position and i think for a lot of people Pete Buttigieg is a moderate but he has all the hallmarks of a you know of a more progressive candidate, especially, you know, the fact that he is gay. And so I think that embracing Pete Buttigieg and being, you know, supportive of his candidacy allows people to thread that needle of feeling like they are progressive when actually supporting pretty middle of the road, you know, Democrat Democratic policies. Um, I think that, you know, I think ultimately, as much as I would, I think Pete Buttigieg has an incredibly bright future in politics. I don't think that he's going to go the distance now because I honestly just don't think that his accomplishments merit the office that he's going for. That's interesting because if you look at him... If the the nominee is smart, if the eventual nominee is smart, they will heavily involve him in the campaign as a surrogate and they will give him a prominent post in their administration. But but here's here's what kind of piques my interest on this is the fact that, you know... They were saying the same thing about a small-time governor from Arkansas back in 1991 or 1992. Remember, he didn't get in till late. And probably a first-time senator from Illinois. Right. Exactly. Same thing. I mean, is Pete Buttigieg that one that takes out the rest of the named powerhouses? Does he sneak up like a Clinton or an Obama and sneak into the... In, not only into the nomination, but possibly the White House. Well, there was a, I'm sorry, there was a difference with Bill Clinton, though, because remember, Bill Clinton was seen as a possible presidential candidate in 1988, and he actually he actually explored it, and then he met with Betsy Wright, his chief of staff in Arkansas, and they determined that it wasn't the right time for him. So he actually held the press conference in Little Rock, announcing that he wasn't going to run for president. And in 1988, he actually gave the keynote address nominating Mike Dukakis, so people knew who he was. But the other advantage he had that year in 1992 as well 
is you had Mario Cuomo deciding not to run. You had Al Gore not running, Lloyd Benson not running, Jesse Jackson not running, Dick Gephardt not running, Joe Biden not running, in part because George H.W. Bush was at 91%. So he was smart. He actually got in the race. He got in very late after a legislative session. He got in October 3rd of that year, and he was able to get the nomination. But he had a lot more name recognition. In the case of Buttigieg, but he really came out of nowhere. If you asked a year ago who Pete Buttigieg is outside of Salt Lake, Indiana, his name recognition would probably be about 1%. Um, in the case of Barack Obama, he gave that one speech in 2004 at the convention in Boston where he absolutely electrified the crowd. So she, he got his name recognition based on that. But Buttigieg actually worked it. He actually worked in terms of getting the name recognition himself right. basically by going to Iowa, New Hampshire, right. and that one CNL town hall meeting where he absolutely um, just kind of floored the place, and that's where he got to where he was. One more thing about Buttigieg, though. He has to run for president, in a sense, because it would be very hard for him to run for an office in Indiana, like governor of Indiana, senator from Indiana, because Indiana is a lot more conservative state, and it would be very hard for him to get elected. Right. It's probably the best course for him is to run for president, get a cabinet position, and then potentially run for president okay. from there rather than running from governor. Fair enough. And, Real quick, Sharmila. And to, um, sorry, to continue with Rich's point, uh, both Obama and Clinton had shallow fields. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Beauty yep. judge does not. Right. True. Uh, Alan Moore, real quickly, uh, two things I want to talk about outside of the 2020. Uh, first of all, yesterday it was announced uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has not been able to form a government in Tel Aviv. And it looks like that there may be a major power shifting going on in the Israeli Knesset and in the Israeli government. Is that something that should concern us or should we be happy about this? Well, it did- Depending on people, how, how different people feel about Netanyahu, um, they can feel good about it or not. It, it, it's not in America's interest for Israel to be in a position of, of uncertainty uh, uh, going forward, but that's how it is. It's, it's a divided uh, country. Uh, there are many of those uh, around. Um, if, you, if you hate Trump, you hate then his relationship with, with Netanyahu, and, and there's a tendency for people to say, ah, serves him right. Um, if, you, if you worry about Israel or, or you, you maybe think that Trump goes a little overboard in, in getting in bed with Netanyahu, you, you still like to see stability in that country. So we're going to have to see how this plays out. I don't think that, 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 uh, that the, I don't think the current turmoil is, is in our interest, but it will get itself sorted out. Is it, is it something that ultimately could be a good thing for the United States? Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, we tend to the we, nationalistic sentiment is we, you know, we, we tend to adjust to events in the world uh, as as they play out, and right. what looks bad now sometimes turns better, and what we think might be good uh, does it turns out not to be so good. Um, I, I think that uh, obviously in Israel, there there some people are just tired of Netanyahu, right. um, and. And uh, I think that that I, and I, I certainly don't know enough about the internal politics to to have anything th- that insightful okay. right. uh, to say. But but turmoil there is not in U.S. interest. Right. Uh, other thing. Are you surprised Justin Trudeau's win in Canada? I was I, I it was a toss up. So uh, it was a very weak win, but a win is a win. Um, he's got to find a coalition partner now because he lost his clear majority. But he's he's uh, he's in a stronger position than he might have been, and many people thought that he was going to be gone. Um, that that's 
that's less uh, concerning, I think, to to the U.S. I don't think a, a, a major uh, change uh, is is going to occur there. That's uh, that's contrary to uh, to our interests. I wanted to say one more thing about Buttigieg. Watching the debate last week, right? You find a lot of the people, the, the front runners, have things pretty obvious flaws. And 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 they can grate on uh, on you. Bernie's kind of this wild, crazy guy, and you think of the Saturday Night Live uh, 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 portrayal of him. Right. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is kind of a of a of a, of a know it all and stern also a caricature on and Saturday Night now Live. Now being caricatured, not to her benefit, I would say, but right. but but pretty accurately. Joe Biden is showing his weakness and some anger here and there. So you. Buttigieg stands out as a smart, articulate guy who's who's who can disagree without being disagreeable. Right. That you cannot say that about the other three. Right. Right. Good point. All right. Uh, that's that's going to do it for our podcast this week. Uh, on behalf of Alan Moore, Rich Rubino, Shamlachari, please come back or at least call in. You know, phones work both ways. Huh? Just saying. We love you here. Uh, Rob the Engineer, thank you for keeping us on. Somewhere around here is Eric the Producer. I don't know where he's running off to. And Crowd control. Crowd, con- crowd control? What do we got out there? Good grief. Best uh, political podcast you've ever downloaded. Oh, nice, nice. Fans, fan base. And, of course, Charlie, Bernie, Oscar, uh, the proprietors here at Podcast Village. We love you guys. Thanks for having us. Uh, you can download us on every major podcast download service like Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, just about anywhere. What kind of a big deal now? You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Hey, have a great week, America. We'll see you.